Welcome to the Baker Tilly U.S. podcast, an online community developed to connect you to our partners and leaders across the globe. Subscribe today to continue discovering new and unique ways that Baker Tilly can help enhance or protect your value as we discuss timely, relevant, and impactful topics. Our current series is being led by Chris Anderson, Managing Partner at Baker Tilly. Recognizing that the coronavirus is affecting businesses and organizations regardless of industry size or geography, Chris will be talking to various Baker Tilly practice group leaders about practical guidance to help them through the next few weeks and how they can prepare their businesses and employees to come back strong in the future. Let's get started. We're going to talk a little bit about the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, the CARES Act, which was just approved on Friday, March 27th. So we realize it's less than 24 hours new. Um, but it's an important aspect of relief to many. So if we could focus in today on our discussion on the Small Business Administration loans um, and some of the additional uh, relief that is included in this package. And I understand there's actually maybe even a couple of uh, amendments that are in place to the previously approved uh, Family First Act, and so I think we'll we'll highlight some of those as we go through. But could you start off maybe just with an introduction of yourself, and then share a little bit about what some of the highlights of the CARE Act are related to SBA loans? Thanks, Chris. This is uh, Tim Koziak. I serve as Baker Tilly's Director of our Depository and Lending Practice, uh, and as you might imagine, in that role, I have been closely watching the development of the CARES Act. Uh, really from two sides. Uh, one, one is from the perspective of the bankers in terms of how they're going to play uh, in what is now uh, the SBA-directed loan program uh, under the CARES Act. And then uh, how we can also help our small business clients that work through our banking prospects and clients with regard to how they're going to access these loans. It's an interesting dynamic. You know, the CARES Act, as it went through Congress, you know, morphed quite a bit um, from the beginning of what we thought, you know, we had maybe a week ago. Uh, and so we thought we could maybe walk through some of the key aspects of the CARES Act and, and what's in there, uh, most notably as it relates to small businesses. Uh, I can also touch a little bit about what this means for the banks. Uh, maybe start with the, the Paycheck Protection Program and a little bit about what that entails. So the, the, the Paycheck Protection Program, which in the grand scheme of things is a program that's intended to enable small businesses to continue to pay their employees through a designated period of time. And so the Paycheck Protection Program allows a broader base of businesses, essentially any business with less than 500 employees, any business that was previously defined as a small business concern under the SBA guidelines that existed prior to this act. And it also extends, extends these provisions to sole proprietors and other small organizations that might not otherwise fit. So first and foremost is intended to be as broad-based as possible in, in that regard. Um, and so the, the Paycheck Protection Program enables those businesses that do qualify um, to borrow up to two and a half times its average monthly payroll as calculated over the previous 12 months. So you take a look back into 2019 and the early part of 2020. Keep in mind, you had to be a business and you had to be active as of February 15th of 2020. So this is not eligible for new businesses that started up in the last two to three weeks. You know, you had to have a history of making payroll. 
uh, you take that average monthly payroll times two and a half, and, and that's the maximum amount you can borrow, or $10 million, whichever is less. And so if you had a larger payroll, you are going to have some limitation. Those larger payrolls might be in those instances in which, for example, the act enables franchisees, let's say in the restaurant business, um, to spread this out on a per location basis. And so they may have well over 500 employees, but from the standpoint that each location has less than 500, that's to how it will be applied. It also breaks down the affiliation rules uh, which basically in the past would have said if you're affiliated and that puts you over the certain limitations, you don't qualify. Those affiliation rules are suspended for purposes of this program. So um, important for people to take a look and consult with outside advisors on whether or not the eligibility of the 500 by location or even the, some of the other provisions. That's a, that's, a, that's a great opportunity, but make sure you're consulting with your right. Yeah, understand, don't, don't, don't give up on this if you say, well, I have 1,200 employees. You may qualify um, because if it's based on affiliations, it's based on locations, there might be, again, the intent is to get this as broad-based as possible. Um, so the point being is you can borrow based on the payroll that you paid uh, on, a, on a regular basis historically over the last 12 months. Those amounts ultimately can be repaid at a reduced discount rate, I think 4%, over up to 10 years. Um, so the, the terms of the loan is, in essence, a 10-year loan at 4%, uh, so on and so forth. But, but the, I think, most notable provision here is, is that to the extent that the proceeds of that loan are used between the time in which you granted the loan and June 30th of 2020 uh, for the qualifying expenditures, that amount is forgiven. Uh, and, and the qualifying expenditures we're talking about here are interest on any debt that you incurred prior to March 1st of this year, uh, payroll support, employee benefits, so the broad base of employee benefits, meaning insurance, 401k contributions, all those things get put into there. Mortgage payments, so to the extent that you have long-term debt on real estate for purposes of your business, that goes into the mix. Rent and utilities. And so if, if you think about it, it's, it's all of the costs that enable you to keep the people occupied and working. Uh, there is no requirement in terms of their actual productivity. There, there is a, just a requirement that you pay them. And, and so to the extent that you do pay them and you pay your rent, you pay your utilities between the time you achieve the loan and June 30th of this year, uh, that amount would be forgiven. So it's an opportunity for forgiveness, but it's not an automatic forgiveness. Is that my understanding? It's, it's not an automatic forgiveness. You're going to be required uh, upon achieving that date. So assuming you carry this thing all the way through June 30th of 2020, you, you will be required once the SBA comes up with the protocols for this program. You'll be required to submit an application for forgiveness. Uh, we anticipate, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, speculating this, we haven't seen the actual rules yet, but, but we understand that there will be a process in place for submission for forgiveness, uh, which would include documentation. Um, so from a standpoint of all the things I just articulated uh, in terms of costs, such as utilities, such as rent, uh, payroll uh, payments, all those things are going to have to be documented and then ultimately submitted back to the SBA for submission. Wonderful. So, so two questions, specific questions. Still no personal guarantees required, Tim, or is that, does that no change? Per no personal guarantees are required. The organizations will need to make a good faith certification. 
essentially this good faith certification is we did in fact make payroll, <laughs> you know, that we are reporting to. And then that these funds will in fact be used for the purposes that are intended under the act. In addition to the no personal guarantees waiver, there are other waivers that, that have been uh, granted in this process. So I think just pay attention to what those are. They're, they're historically in the SBA program is an obligation to represent that you are unable to achieve uh, or obtain credit elsewhere. Yep. So the SBA to some degree for small businesses has been a lender of last resort because of its guarantee and so on and so forth. In this case, you will not need to make that representation. Um, so you can come directly to them without exhausting all of your previous accesses to credit. So maybe just uh, if you could cover a couple of the general provisions or payment deferral opportunities within the Paycheck Protection Program. Talk a little bit about you know where can these loans come from? As I understand it, perhaps there's been an expansion of those lending organizations that might be able to work with you on SBA loans. Uh, that, that is true. So um, at this point in time, uh, the, as I indicated before, these will be administered through SBA lenders, not directly through the SBA. So it's a historical program, if you will, uh, consistent with what's always been in place other than the terms of the loans and the other things we've described. Uh, the act also expands the opportunity for banks who are not currently approved SBA lenders to participate in the program. So if you have a banking relationship and you want to stay with that banking relationship, but that bank is historically not an SBA lender, they can choose. They'll have to get the authority from the FDIC or their primary regulator. And we understand, um, at least from what has been talked about in the in our networks is that that's going to not be unreasonably withheld, uh, that the FDIC and the OCC will accommodate in terms of allowing its banks that are not historically SBA lenders to participate in this program. Um, so That would be very comforting to know that I can go to my lender that knows me, that has been working with me, and if they, if they hadn't been an SBA lender in the past, they can perhaps become one. So check with your your immediate advisor and banking advisor, trusted trusted resource you have to see right. if they might be able to help you out here. Yeah, Chris, and I think that's important. You, you make a good point with regard to they know me, we have an, extent, uh, an existing relationship. As much as this is an expedited process, it is intended to be uh, quick access to these funds for the small businesses that in most cases have been harmed by coronavirus and the related economic consequences. There still is a rather robust submission of documentation. And if you can stay within your banking relationship, in some cases, those documents may already be in place and they can be easily rolled into the SBA submission process. And then if there are other things that you need to describe with regard to your business, uh, they're going to already know that. Um, right. so I want to make sure that that our clients and other small businesses recognize that the documentation trail here isn't really any less significant than it historically would have been in any other kind of lending relationship. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good reminder. Yeah. So um, the other thing to think about here is, on, um, you know, standard provisions and some deferrals, no fees. Generally SBA loans come with a fee. There's no fee that's going to be paid. There'll be a modest fee that the bankers will get, but that's going to get paid directly by the SBA. Um, so that's not coming from the borrower. So, you know, dollar for dollar, your two and a half times your historical monthly payroll is what you're going to get. Um, so, you know, you can do that calculation. Um, <clears throat> with, with regard to um, anything that is not forgiven. So if you think about going through this process, keep in mind, 
You know, as much as the bill was passed yesterday, uh, what the bill articulates is it gives the SBA 15 days um, to put together the process. And so the SBA, granted, they have been working on this. They don't anticipate that the banks are going to be taking applications until April 6th from a standpoint of the time they need to get the process in place and get the documentation trail um, designed. And if you think about April 6th, then you take another week to get through the process, submit your documents, get it approved, get the funding. You're not at or around April 15th. That's two and a half times, uh, or that's two and a half months, if you will, to June 30th. Um, it's going to be likely that in some cases, uh, the amount that you borrow will be more than the amount that you will spend uh, on the qualifying expenditures, even though the qualifying expenditures are more than just payroll. But, but there will be circumstances here for whatever reason that there's dollars left over. And, and what's important to know about those dollars left over is first and foremost is there's a six-month deferral, at least a six-month deferral and up to one year. So you go to June 30th, you take what you didn't get forgiven. You don't have to pay until the 1st of January of next year. Keeping in mind you're accruing interest at 4%, but you don't have to pay no, no interest payments um, and then at that point, you can also uh, apply for an extension of that deferral for another six months. So it gives you an opportunity to have a little bit of breathing space, right? So the, the amount that you get is based on your past payroll, but that may not be representative of your qualified expenses during this window of time. And so you don't have to repay anything that's excess immediately. You have a six-month at least deferral. Boy, I bet you that would be very, very helpful for many business owners to know that they can hold a little back for those unknown things that might come up that you don't know about. And although it may not be forgiven, it is a quick loan. You weren't available to credit other ways. That, that is a great relief, I bet. Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's, it, and if you think about that, whatever that amount is, that's unsecured credit for basically one year from that point forward yeah. <clears throat> at 4%. Uh, that's not something you're going to be able to get in any banking environment. There also have been questions around to the extent that an organization has taken advantage of the uh, economic injury loans under the existing uh, SBA program, which the Family First Act kind of expanded to this current crisis. There's some nuances there. Um, to the extent you have been granted funds through that program, one of two things can happen. Uh, one, you can refinance, if you will, and basically roll those into these dollars. So if you had gotten you know, $200,000 through that program based on what you thought your economic injury was, and you have that and you feel the terms here are better because of the potential of forgiving it or the deferral of payments, you could roll that $200,000 into this program and it basically repays that. And if you have dollars that you can articulate and demonstrate are going to be used specifically for a different purpose. So they're not going to be used for one of the five or six categories that are in the Paycheck Protection Program. You, you can keep those dollars because there was a, a belief at the beginning of this that these were mutually exclusive. They are not mutually exclusive entirely. You, 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 what you can't do is have economic injury proceeds using those for payroll protection uh, and then get a payroll protection loan. You can refinance the, the one that came through the EIDL program, um, or if those dollars were used to something else, you can keep those dollars. So Tim, can you share with me a possible scenario where somebody who has an existing EIDL loan might choose to refinance under the Paycheck Protection Program? What scenarios, why would they do that so that we understand how that might help? 
Yeah, most, I think the most likely scenario is, is if you uh, entered into the EIDL program initially, which was available with the Family First Act, you were granted those funds, and it was your intent to use those funds to continue to make payroll payments or some of the other payments that are described in now the Paycheck Protection Program. Under the EIDL program, those proceeds are, were not forgivable you would have to repay those over a period of time. Terms were still rather uh, beneficial, but it wasn't a forgivable loan. And so what you may want to do in this exercise, which it is allowed to do, is if you are going to use those funds for the same purposes under the Paycheck Protection Program, um, is to refinance that piece through this, uh, and then you have the ability to have those, those funds forgiven as long as they get used between the inception of the loan and June 30th. You know, so there is quite a bit of discussion in regards to the, what's in the allowable use of proceeds and what's not. Where would people go to get those details uh, to make sure that they're looking at that? Obviously, they can call their advisor. We would love to help them with that. But people that want to kind of take a look at and understand what payroll costs are included or excluded, where would you suggest they go? Yeah, so, so right now, uh, there's one or two places, uh, including our own website, you know, where you can go find a pretty comprehensive uh, summary of the act uh, in terms of uh, what the terms are, uh, the response to what you just asked, and that is, what can I use these proceeds for? You're going to find those on our website. You're going to find them throughout the whole, you know, internet base of things. Um, the act itself, I mean, if you're so inclined to want to look at the act itself, uh, it, it will become more specific once the SBA gets these guidelines out, uh, which we expect, you know, within 15 days. So Tim, as we think about the allowable use of proceeds, um, what can businesses expect from payroll costs to be included? And maybe if you could highlight a couple of the exclusions to get people a feel for, for how coverage will be evaluated. Again, this was intended to be as encompassing as possible and encompassing with regard to all of those things that represent payroll costs. Tenth of the act here is to not to burden small businesses with the full amount of costs uh, related to keeping their people uh, occupied and paid for what they're doing. So obviously compensation, salaries, commissions, and similar compensation are included. There is a limitation, uh, nothing over $100,000 on an annual basis. So basically, if you've got people that are in your mix that are over $100,000 in annual compensation, uh, that has to be excluded. Not, not all of it, but anything above $100,000 is excluded. You've got to look at compensation a little bit more definitively to figure out how you add that up. All of the ancillary costs uh, with regard to health benefits, paid sick leave, medical family leave, all of those things that are in there, your insurance premiums, those are included. Keep in mind, however, that if an employee uh, under the Family First Act was compensated directly under that for paid sick leave pursuant to being directly affected by the coronavirus, that amount is excluded. You, you can't layer that on top of that and say, well, that got paid because that's already been paid by the government. That, that piece comes out. So if you had people who in your mix are affected directly by the coronavirus and got paid through the Family First Act, that's excluded. I think one of the other things that's important is we, we continue to call about, talk about small businesses, but this does include sole proprietors, independent contractors, and eligible self-employed individuals you know, which was kind of defined in the COVID-19 Family First 
Coronavirus Family Act. Um, so all of those now are also eligible for these loans, which I think is an important expansion. Is that yeah. correct? It is absolutely, yeah. So it, you know, I think as this went through Congress, I think the uh, clarity around who really is defined as small business became a bit more encompassing, and so sole proprietors, family businesses, all of those kinds of things are included. However, keep in mind that the documentation and submission requirements are no different. The calculations might be a little bit different, and and the obligations are slightly different. But in the grand scheme of things. Uh, it was really just expanded to them, but they've got to come up with the same information. Take a look. Just don't assume small business less than 500 employees as previously defined. Make right. sure you're actually advising, talking to somebody to make sure you understand uh, what lovers are here. I think that's a, that's a great point. Right. Maybe would you mind talking a little bit in regards to what are some recommended next steps that people take as soon as possible? I think there's two things that people should be doing. Take, taking a look, and I think it's included in uh, our summary, uh, you know, a list of what the expectations are going to be. It will become more clear once the uh, SBA comes out with its specific requirements from a standpoint of submissions. But, but gather the documents that you need. First and foremost, it's look back in terms of the payroll. Uh, there's also going to be other submissions about just the standard uh, aspects of your business, uh, whether it's ownership structure and all those kinds of things. I think you have to gather all those. Um, you know, consult with your trusted advisors with regard to where do you fit in, in this uh, model. Are you here because you're simply less than 500 employees? Are you here because you're above 500 employees but you meet the test? Uh, you know, as we were studying this, for example, you know, and some of them are much larger. Um, oil and gas, for example, is 1,250 employees. Yeah. You know, so an oil and gas company that has a thousand employees is considered a small business. And then, you know, franchisees, as we talked before, where you may have many, many employees, but they're scattered across 40 different locations that you have in terms of your franchise base. And therefore, just understand where you're coming from so that you can articulate very clearly to the SBA or your local bank, if you will, what channel you qualify through and then gather that information. Um, and then if you clearly expect, to, and this is, I think, going to be the case for most every organization who accesses these funds, if you expect to be making those payroll payments, to be paying rent, to pay utilities, to pay mortgage payments in the period up to June 30th, um, you know, really evaluate your ability to capture all that documentation. And I think you need to be thinking about that at this point in time uh, and not just assuming that as long as I make these payments, it's going to be forgiven. It is going to be forgiven if you can document the fact that those payments have been made. It's um, a great reminder and it's a great time for business owners to think about who they're working with that can help them right. gather some of this documentation, think through this. Right. Uh, is certainly there to help um, and we're, we're glad to help discuss the opportunities as well as help make sure that organizations are well positioned for the future. Yeah. Chris, one thing, one thing I, wouldn't, I wouldn't set aside, because it's, even though it's not required uh, in the context of these loans, as it was in the uh, economic injury um, program, and generally in the SBA programs, is, is the 13-week cash flow forecast. Oh. Okay. So you don't have to demonstrate harm for the Paycheck Protection Program. So you don't have to go through that process to say, this is where, where our, you know, my forecast is in comparison to what it was a year ago. If you went through the economic injury, you had to show that comparative analysis, right? And, and you don't have to do that here. 
but but the point being is, if you go back to my comment about you know, what's going to happen for the next 13 weeks, I'm going to use this money. What's beyond that? Um, and if I don't use all of these dollars in that period of time, that's going to roll into that 13 week period, right? So how does the, how does the, the deferral affect me? How does the interest rate affect me? I, I think that might get lost on some folks in this case because it's not necessarily at the top of the list. But I still would encourage people today to be thinking about that um, in terms of forward looking beyond June 30th. Tim, that's a great reminder. You know, in this time right now, we all feel a little bit like we're out of control. Somebody else is, is controlling our destiny. What a planful opportunity to think about what are my 13 weeks cash flow needs? How do I use some of the different economic stimulus available to help me make sure I'm keeping employees engaged, keeping employees employed, helping in the community? But then also think about, okay, if I don't need all of these this money available through the Paycheck Protection Program to pay my employees and others, what can I be doing to make sure that we are here to help the communities into the future? Right now for tomorrow, what decisions can I make now? I think that's a great reminder. Anything else in closing that you think would be helpful for people to consider as they're looking at the various options or, you know? You know I, I think, um, you know, the, many of the questions that we've been fielding to date, I think are excellent questions. Uh, I think continue to ask them from a standpoint of our own process. We're going to assemble those questions on a daily basis. We're gonna get answers out quickly to our constituents across the board. Um, so that we can be responsive. Many of those overlap, and so we're going to try to head those off with, you know, comprehensive FAQs. But, um, you know, I, I think recognize that this is, it is a unique program, and, you know, it's going to take a little bit of patience to get through it. You know, the, the SBA wasn't sitting there with a bunch of people idle looking for things to do. And, and so they're going to have to staff up for this. The banks weren't necessarily thinking that they were going to have $350 billion uh, of access to capital to distribute to their constituents. They're going to need some time. The rules themselves aren't going to be available for another two weeks. And so I, I think a little bit of patience, a little bit of understanding, continue to run your businesses um, to the extent that you can keep those people employed. To your point, Chris, you know, uh, keeping the community engaged and occupied, I, I'd encourage you to do that. I, I think these funds are going to help you get there. There might be a little bit of delay in payroll payments. Nothing in here says that, that you have to make, you know, payroll every time it was scheduled. I mean, if you can keep your employees engaged to say, look at this money's coming and you're going to get paid. Um, what you don't want to do is send them home. Because uh, that starts to cloud the process a little bit. So I think keep the business going is a, is probably the, one of the best things I can offer at this point. That's terrific. Well, well, more will come out and we'll develop more insights that we'll share with people. But I really appreciate the quick turnaround on this and, and your willingness to help share what we know right now. Okay. Uh, your comment of patience is a, is a good one. I think we're all, <laughs> we're all looking to, to try and figure out how we tone, tune that up a little bit. But. Absolutely, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Wonderful. Thanks, Tim, for joining today and take care. Thank you for joining us today. To receive notification when new episodes become available, please subscribe to Baker Tilly U.S wherever you get your podcast.